0: We are continuing our series on Jesus' final parables. These last parables focus on how the disciples, and really any other leaders, must treat people. Last week, Jesus focused on how precious each and every one of us is to God. We pick up again this week in Luke chapter 16, as Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's just finished the parable about the dishonest manager, where he emphasized how important it is that we hold money with an open hand. Money is given to us by God for use in God's purposes. It is not for our own power or glory or for achieving our own personal goals. In Luke. This parable is followed by a little passage made up of three unrelated statements that seem like completely disconnected from the parable about the dishonest manager, as well as from what comes next. It's like they're just plopped in there in Luke. Here's the first one. Jesus says, we had the law and the prophets up until the time of John the Baptist, but ever since the good news has been preached, the kingdom of heaven has been forcibly violated. That doesn't seem to have anything at all to do with the parable of the dishonest manager, does it? Or money or anything. So when that happens, remember to check where the passage appears in other Gospels. Most passages are duplicated. Remember that Mark is the earliest, Matthew copies from him, and Luke seems to copy from both of them. So when you find, you know, you backtrack and you find the passage in its proper context, it will usually make a whole lot more sense. And you'll know you can safely just pass it by in the gospel where it's, you know, sticking out like a sore thumb, like it is here in Luke. This passage seems out of context in Luke. So let's go check its context in Matthew, where where it also appears. In Matthew's gospel, it's right in the middle of Jesus's remarks about who John the Baptist was. He was a true prophet of God who came in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah. And Jesus says this in response to a question that John had sent him from prison, the prison where John was ultimately beheaded. And when we look at it within the context of Matthew's story, it makes sense. John preached the good news faithfully, but he was verbally attacked and then finally arrested. So, yay! now that we can see Matthew had it in context and in the right place, we now know Luke has just kind of plopped it in here out of order and out of context. So we'll just pass it by for now. The the next, the second random statement here in Luke is, It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for the tiniest piece of a letter to fall from the law. We recognize that one, right? It's been lifted right out of the Sermon on the Mount, and it makes much more sense back there. Jesus said in the sermon, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fill it to capacity, to make it complete, to accomplish it. That additional context in Matthew helps the raw statement make much more sense, doesn't it? The third random statement here in Luke is whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, we've heard that one before too in various forms. Versions of it show up in all three Gospels, and looking at the other passages can give you a much better perspective on Jesus' teaching on this. So um, we're not going to cover it here. Uh, If you're interested, you can take a look at um, class 98 in the Sermon on the Mount class series, where, where we actually talk about all of these passages about divorce. So you can see that all three of these, you know, random passages in Luke are better studied in their earlier context in Matthew and Mark. So let's move on to the next story. It, it's not clear whether Jesus is directing this next story at the disciples or at the scribes and Pharisees, but based on the content of the story, I kind of lean toward it being directed towards the scribes and the Pharisees. That's just my best guess. And that makes more sense if you take those three random passages out If you do that, then what the flow of events would be, the Pharisees have been making fun of Jesus about the parable of the dishonest manager. And Jesus has just told them that they may think they're righteous, but God knows their true hearts. And then he tells them this story, which only appears in Luke. Once upon a time, there was a wealthy man clothed in the very finest of linen and purple. The Greek actually means purple fish, and it refers to a special purple dye that's made from a particular mollusk, one drop of dye per mollusk. So it's very, very expensive. So by saying it this way, Jesus is is saying this guy is like our modern day billionaire. This wealthy man makes merry every day. A certain beggar named Lazarus has his place at the rich man's gate. He is covered with ulcers that the dogs come and lick. (laughs) Lazarus longs to be fed from whatever falls from the rich man's table. And so it happens that both men die. Poor Lazarus dies and is borne away by the angels into the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man also died and is buried. The rich man in torment in Hades looks up and sees Abraham in the distance with Lazarus in his bosom. And he cries out to him, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to me so he can dip the the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am suffering in this fire. But Abraham says, Child. Remember that you received your full due of good things in your lifetime, while Lazarus, in the same way, received evil things. Now he is comforted. That word comforted is parakaleo, which is the word that paraclete or encourager comes from. It is the paraclete. Jesus will one day tell the disciples he'll send after he's gone. This encourager is widely understood to be the Holy Spirit. So we could understand this statement to mean that Lazarus is being comforted by the Holy Spirit. Now Lazarus is comforted while you are in agony and besides. A great chasm has been established between us and you so that those wishing to step across to you cannot. Neither can anyone cross over from there to here. Now I'm going to stop this parable right here because I think up to this point, it is just Jesus telling a popular cultural story that everyone knows. I think Jesus is about to add a surprise ending to it, which he's done a time or two with other parables. But before we get to that, I want to talk about why I don't think Jesus made the story up up to this point. I don't think he made this part of it up. I think it's an established story. One thing that gives us a hint that it's a popular cultural story is It doesn't sound like a typical Jesus parable. Think about it. Jesus typically uses images drawn from people's common lives, like farming, rich people's banquets, trees along the side of the road, people building things, the lives of servants and vineyard workers. On the rare occasion that Jesus even talks at all about the consequences of actions, he uses the image of Gehenna the trash dump outside of Jerusalem. And he talks about it as a place outside, which is where it is for them, a place in darkness where there is deep regret, including the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. At least up to this point, he hasn't talked about fiery eternal torture with no possibility of repentance or mercy. Another reason I don't think Jesus made this story up is that the Hebrew Bible doesn't talk about the afterlife in these terms either. The Hebrew Bible refers to Sheol, which is not described as a place of torture, but as a place of nothingness, neither good nor bad, simply dead like a graveyard. And whenever Sheol is translated into Greek, the Greek word for Sheol is Hades. So Hades at least in ancient Jewish understanding, is not a place of torment. So where did this weird little story come from? Well, the first thing we might consider is that the embellishment of Hades as being a temporary place with torments and rewards, is relatively new to the Jews. This embellishment entered their culture under the influence of their various conquerors, in particular, the Persians and Greeks, just a few hundred years before Jesus' birth. And there's a definite Egyptian influence as well. Remember, there's been a large, prestigious Jewish community down in Alexandria, Egypt, for many hundreds of years, and the Egyptians have a very different understanding of the afterlife than is presented in the Hebrew Bible. In fact, there's an old Egyptian story of Osiris in which a man is given a tour of the realm of the dead where he sees rewards for people who have done more good deeds than bad and punishments for people who have done more bad than good. There's even a section in the Egyptian underworld for people whose good deeds are equal to their bad deeds. (laughs) That's very different than the Hebrew Bible which expects evil men to be punished on earth or be punished by having all their descendants obliterated after their death. In fact, there is only one single late reference in Daniel 12 to those sleeping in the dust who will be awakened to a resurrection of either everlasting life or contempt. That is a Persian context. And in the Hebrew Bible, this, cha- this chapter in Daniel was written just 200 years before Jesus' birth. Nevertheless, this new concept is carried back from Persia to Palestine when the captives return home. Over the couple of hundred years before Jesus' birth, it becomes even more pronounced and exaggerated. We can actually see its growth in the books of the Apocrypha, which were written during that intermediate period between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. And it is at that time that we also begin to see the phrase bosom of Abraham being used for the first time in stories. You can think of it as an idea that's sort of seeping into the Jewish cultural understanding of life after death, and it it fills a void left by the Hebrew Bible, which simply trusts that God will set everything right in the end. Knowing exactly how God will deal with bad people who get away with it here on earth is a very attractive idea. People suffering here on earth like to think that after death, there is a temporary place where the bad, especially the rich and powerful, are punished and the good, especially those who suffered in life, are rewarded before and at the final resurrection. It's an idea that gets stronger and stronger until it is pervasive by the time of Jesus. And it continues to be embellished even after the time of Jesus. The early Christian views about Hades Are articulated quite specifically by an early Christian theologian named Hippolytus. He lived about 200 years after Christ, and we have manuscripts of some of his arguments against Plato. I've put a link on the screen to Werner Bible Commentary, which is a good source for more info on this. And here are some of the things Hippolytus says First, Hades is a temporary place with several sections. Sound familiar? The unrighteous, whom he describes as idol worshipers, are dragged by force to a section of utter darkness where the angels impose temporary punishments based on their deeds. The righteous, however, are led by the angels with songs and hymns to an area of light and peace called the bosom of Abraham. There's that phrase. And in between these two areas, Hippolytus says, is a vast abyss. The unrighteous are close enough to a lake of unquenchable fire that they can feel its heat. Hippolytus called this lake Gehenna. According to Hippolytus, no one is cast into the lake of unquenchable fire until the judgment day when the unrighteous will finally be cast in for eternal torment and punishment while the righteous move on to receive the kingdom you can already see the divergence from Jesus teachings, can't you? Jesus has not talked about a lake of unquenchable fire in which people will be eternally tormented. Jesus has only spoken of a place of darkness where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, a place of deep regret. And so far, when Jesus speaks of Gehenna, It is always in reference to the trash heap outside of Jerusalem that was always stinking and smoldering. So with this broader cultural context, we can understand why this story of the rich man and Lazarus doesn't sound like any of Jesus' other parables. It's because Jesus is telling a story that everyone already knows It's not his story. He's not making a theological statement about the afterlife, nor about purgatory, which is what this temporary place eventually comes to be called, or about eternal torment. At least that's what I think based on all the everything I just showed you. I think Jesus is repurposing this story so he can change the punchline. It seems originally to be a cautionary tale about how the righteous are rewarded and the unrighteous are punished, right? If, if the story ended right where, it, where we are, that's what it would be about. Jesus tells the story up to that point as he's talking to the Pharisees about how they think they're righteous, but God sees their hearts. But then Jesus carries the whole story a little further, giving it an entirely new punchline. Let's pick the story up again and see the twist Jesus gives to the end of it. Jesus says, when Abraham tells the rich man cannot have a drink of water, nor can he cross over the great chasm, the rich man answers, I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. He can warn them so they do not end up in this place of torment. So notice that the rich man wants Lazarus to rise from the dead to go warn his, uh, the rich man's brothers. But Abraham replies, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, they won't, Father Abraham, says the rich man. But if someone from the dead would go to them, they would repent. But Abraham says, If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now, that's a very different punchline than would normally be attached to this story. This would be like Jesus changing the ending of the story of Cinderella from they lived happily ever after to and the prince worked while Cinderella got her master's degree. It's very unexpected and therefore very memorable. Jesus has told this whole story in response to the Pharisees who who love money and who have been sneering at his teaching about not being able to serve both God and money. And Jesus knows that he needs to clarify all this for his disciples. They are surely lost. You know, how he teaches them is very different from how he teaches the Pharisees. Uh, So Jesus takes the time right here to go back to the roots of the Hebrew Bible and explain to his disciples what does eventually happen. And it's not what this popular cultural story described. Jesus says to his disciples, you know, guys, stumbling blocks are going to happen in life. The Greek word Jesus uses here doesn't just mean random bumps in the road. It means traps or snares placed intentionally, of which money, as we know, is a big one, right? He says, traps and snares are going to happen, but woe to the one who puts them there. It would be better for him to be cast into the sea with a millstone around his neck. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother misses the mark, warn him. Translations of this verse in Luke seventeen three often say to rebuke your brother, but the Greek carries a broader meaning than that. It, it carries a connotation of just you know stay in stay in your lane, but warn your brother to prevent something from going wrong if if you can see you know the wheels are about to fall off the wagon. It, and if he does wrong to you seven times in a single day and repents. Forgive him. Now that is a very straightforward teaching. This same teaching shows up in both Matthew and Mark. So I'm going to go um, pick up the additional bits that they have to add. Jesus says, if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, put it out. It is better to enter the kingdom of God maimed than to enter or be thrown into Gehenna where, quote, their worms do not die and the fire is not quenched. That last bit is a quote from Isaiah 66. That passage in Isaiah is a picture of the Lord's utter outrage at people who do all the right religious rituals, but are secretly evil. Jesus is saying, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like those folks. Let's look at the passage in Isaiah to get some context for what Jesus is referring to. The people Jesus is talking to would know this context. The disciples would know this. These next couple of verses um, are quotes from the New International Version. The Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people and many will be those slain by the Lord. Isaiah goes on to say that those slain are those who pretend to be righteous, but are actively and intentionally doing evil. But this same Isaiah passage is also full of other end time references we've come to expect and to look for passages describing peace and restoration for the Jews and how everyone in the entire world will come to worship the Lord and how the Lord will choose new priests and Levites from among the Jews. I think it's very interesting that the Lord is judging all people with fire. And his sword. We know from studying the Hebrew Bible that the Lord's fire is a fire of purification and holiness. It is consistently represented in ways that indicate this fire is part of the very essence of God. It is the Holy Spirit of God. By definition, it purifies all that is not holy. And it's this very same Holy Spirit that we've been given. It's the fire we can stand in now. This is Jesus' message, and it was God's message all the way through the Hebrew Bible. God is near. We can draw near to God. And in doing so, we are drawing near to this very fire of holiness and purification. And what about that sword, the one that slays the pretenders, those who lead, you know, the ones who lead other people into evil? Is that the sword of the Spirit, which is the capital W, Word, which is Jesus Christ? Maybe. I think so. But this passage ends by talking about bodies lying around outside of Jerusalem and how their worms do not die and the fire is not quenched. That all sounds very physical, very earthy. And Gehenna itself, the actual trash dump, would naturally be a place where worms never die and fires are not quenched. This is very physical imagery that Jesus is drawing from, and it is specific to the city of Jerusalem. I think these prophecies seem to have a dual meaning, a spiritual one as well as a physical one about the Lord physically defending Jerusalem in the last day. If you go back and read Isaiah 66, you'll see even more physical references to the survivors of that final war going out to gather God's people from all over the world and bring them home to Jerusalem using whatever kind of transportation they can find. It's a remarkable passage, and this is what Jesus is quoting from. But Jesus seems to be speaking to the spiritual aspect of the prophecy, not to, you know, The impending final war. And it's important to understand this context because it helps make sense of what Jesus says next. He says, For everyone, or you could interpret that as all things, will be salted with fire. Now that makes sense if the fire is the Holy Spirit. We are all going to be salted with it, it will preserve and purify us. And notice, that to Jesus, the fire is not a bad thing, quite the opposite. In fact, in his very next breath, Jesus says, salt is a good thing. Being salted with fire is a good thing. Jesus just said so. That's how I know we're on the right track with our interpretation here. Understanding that all the fire and sword stuff is talking about something holy and good Rather than something destructive and punitive, it's not just wishful thinking. It's solidly in line with what Jesus says here. Jesus continues, salt is a good thing, but you can't make it salty again if it loses its saltiness. So have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, this totally aligns with Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, that we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Jesus uses salt and light interchangeably in his imagery. He has done through his whole ministry. And note that the result for us as disciples is that we should simply relax about all of this and be at peace within ourselves and with each other. These should not be passages of distress. So we've looked at Luke and Mark. Let's see what Matthew does with the passage. Matthew pretty much copies Mark, but he leaves out the Isaiah quote. Thank goodness for Mark, or we'd not have known all that very helpful context. Matthew launches from here into the parable about our father in heaven, leaving the 99 sheep to go find one sheep that got lost, and how God is not willing for even the least one to perish. And after that, Matthew talks about how to handle things when a brother or sister wrongs you. We covered that back in the series on discipleship 102 in class 113. Then Matthew inserts a section on forgiving each other 77 times or 70 times seven, lots and lots, however many times are necessary. Luke toned that down quite a bit in his version, but the point is still the same. So to recap where we are, Jesus has told a story to the Pharisees about the afterlife of the rich and the poor that everyone recognizes, but he's added a brand new punchline telling them that if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they won't even believe someone who comes back from the dead. Then he explains to his disciples that the real truth is the same as that proclaimed by the the Hebrew prophets. There will be stumbling blocks in life. But don't be the one who creates them for others. The Lord himself will come to utterly destroy all evil with the fire of his holiness and the sword, presumably of his word, which would be Jesus himself. Jesus calls this being salted with fire. All that is evil will be consigned to the trash heap. And so the disciples are to simply be salt and be at peace and forgive each other as often as necessary. This last bullet point is the only action item on the list. It's the only part of all of this that the disciples need to worry about. And Jesus emphasizes this point with a parable. Once upon a time, there was a king who began to settle his accounts with his servants one of the servants owed him a ginormous amount of money, like a conservative estimate would be between $1 million and $30 million. Huge amount. The servant begs for more time to pay his debt. And the king's heart goes out to him strongly. And he cancels the servant's debt entirely. But just as the servant is leaving, he runs into a fellow servant who owes him less than 50 bucks. He grabs the man, starts to choke him, saying, "Pay what you owe. The man begs him for patience, but the servant has him thrown into prison until he can pay his debt. Of course, all the other servants hear what has happened, and in their distress, they go and tell the king everything. The king summons the servant and says, You wicked, wicked servant! After all the debt I canceled for you, You should have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had mercy on you. And he hands the ruthless servant over to the torturers until he pays back all that he owes. Then Jesus says, this is what my heavenly father will do to you unless you truly forgive each other from your heart yikes let's talk about that a little more in our breakout groups um i've i've if my questions confuse you you know don't fret about it just talk about you know whatever has come up whatever whatever questions whatever has struck you uh, in the stories today all right i can see everybody yay okay this was not easy necessarily <laughs> And I put you, um, I put you all in one group because like half the class is missing today. Um, Just everybody's, everybody's scattered. It'll probably be kind of like that during the summer with people having plans and stuff. But anyway, this is this, um, in this parable, the first thing I asked you about the parable of the unforgiving servant was. What do you think the wicked servant's actual sin was in his heart? What did y'all come up with there?
1: Um, yeah, I'm not I don't remember whose answers were whose. We came up with a three-part answer um, with lack of empathy, greed, and the other one, I think, was mine, and I can't remember what it was. Um, anybody else remember? Oh, unforgiveness, that was it. Unforgiveness, yeah.
0: lack of empathy and greed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that all that all sounds good. I was um you know, I kind of I I thought I wondered if he thought he deserved to be forgiven, you know, if that that it was some sort of hubris that he thought he was better than other folks, you know? And then I thought, well, you know, it greed came to my mind too, you know, and I and I thought, well, I wonder if he was serving power and money. Really, you know, and that then kind of it was just a short step from that to say, well, golly, he valued money over people. Not he, he
1: certainly wasn't doing unto others as was done to him.
0: Yeah, that's for sure right and how does how do how has jesus been teaching his disciples to hold money
2: loosely exactly that well, it's not theirs yeah hold it loosely power and money loosely yeah
0: yeah yeah so <laughs> then i threw you a little curveball i said um what is the purpose Of torture, what would people understand the purpose of torture to be? And of course, when I think torture, I think Spanish Inquisition. So that's what I'm thinking in my mind. Of course, we
1: all first thought punishment. And then when he read the part that said, hint, it's not punishment. (laughs) So then we had to go back to the thinking board. Interesting. And we also said that um, it's a deterrent Hmm. for others to look at it and say, oh, I don't want to go through what they went through.
2: Hmm.
0: Interesting. Interesting. And uh, if you got something other than that. I don't know if we came up with it. <laughs> <laughs> what, you know, I was thinking about the Spanish Inquisition and I was thinking, well, what, what were they trying to do? What were they trying to do in this, when they tortured people in the Spanish Inquisition? We're them to them confess. Get them to and confess. That. Get them to change their minds, which is the very word for repentance. Right. Mm-hmm. And and um and so I I thought, oh, so I wrote down the words com- repentance and confession, which y'all just came up with. So then um, there was, uh, I I asked, um, how would you compare the idea of a fiery Gehenna, the trash heap version outside of Jerusalem with the fire of the Holy Spirit? Those seem to me to be very different things.
3: Shirley came up with a really good one on that.
0: Oh, good. I was just going to say you
3: did, Woody. Uh, Because you turned
1: around better than I did.
3: Well, I will say what Shirley said was, that the fire in Gehenna was, the, the purpose of that fire was to get rid of bad stuff. Mm-hmm. And the purpose
0: of the Holy Spirit is to get rid of the bad stuff in us. Right. One seems to be like a physical, literal thing, and the other seems to be a spiritual thing, right?
1: But they both have the same purpose of purification.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yes, that sounds reasonable to me. That's what I thought, too. Yeah. Okay. Um, so then, you know, Jesus does that whole quote of out of Isaiah 66. And I took you all through the context of that about how, it's, you know, he says it's better to enter the kingdom of God maimed um, from from removing your own stumbling blocks than to be tossed into Gehenna where their worms do not die and the fire is not quenched for everyone will be salted with fire. So first off, I want to point out to you that really interesting part that's not said. The part that it's better to enter the kingdom of God made from removing your own stumbling blocks. That's implied there. And that implies that we are setting traps and snares for ourselves. And that we need to look at those and remove those from our lives. That's easy to miss right there.
3: Interesting. I, I would think off the top of my head that the vast majority of our stumbling blocks are ones that we create ourselves.
0: Right? Absolutely. And, and Jesus says, you know, if it's your hand, cut it off. If it's your foot, cut it off. You gouge it out. It's the whole Sermon on the Mount stuff. He's talking about the things we're doing to ourselves. It, just like what he said. Those are the big ones. Not what people do to us. What we do to ourselves. If I
3: had to if I had to cut off all of my stumbling blocks, there would be nothing left.
0: <laughs> I think he was speaking metaphorically. So <laughs> pretty sure yeah, there are people who
1: literally have done that.
0: Yeah. And that's kind of sad. Because, yeah. because that would make your body, you know, it just, I don't, I think Jesus is about healing our bodies and making us whole and well, and, you know, and, and our fingers and are not evil. But I, I do think like when he's talking about, about, you know, gouging out your eye, what I think about is in our day and age, it would be, you know, if you need to turn off your internet.
1: or
0: at least take a break from it. Whatever. So anyway, what then I then I said, okay, so you can see in my questions. I'm just sitting here kind of thinking all around this parable and and I'm saying, okay, what does a stumbling block prevent? If you have a stumbling block, what is it preventing?
3: A better relationship with God.
0: Hmm. Oh, What else? Where? Think. Think. Visualize a stumbling block. Where would a stumbling block be? If you're going to stumble on it, where is it?
3: Well, it's in your path. It's in your it's, way.
0: It's in your way. It's in your path. It's on your journey. So, th- it, it's it's. So if we think about that path as being, what is our path as disciples? What do we, what are we, live what a are we pardon?
2: Live a spiritual life.
0: I don't know. I think we're supposed to live a very physical life. You know, what do you mean by spirit?
3: Spirit filled. Spirit
2: be That'll work.
3: Grow closer to God.
2: Yeah, but- But I also think that we need to be role models. And I think good begets good, as well as evil begets evil. I mean, I look at, you know, my ex-students, and many of them were on that line, just like I was when I was younger. And one action could have caused them to go the wrong way. And equally, one action could have caused them to go the right way. And I, I do think that we have a requirement to live the word. And I think that dude who was put in jail by the, the king, he was a friggin hypocrite. And I think that we need to not, you know, say one thing and act another thing. Yo, if we're going to walk the walk, then walk it the right way. Yeah. And I don't know how to use you guys as big words. So forgive me for that.
0: No. That, she well, says
2: they well, preach it. <laughs> <Absolutely. got> it.
0: <laughs> That's right. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, if I'm thinking about what I'm, think about what you're called to do. It seems to me that, that, that Jesus did not call us to navel gazing.
1: Didn't
0: call us to what? I missed that. Navel gazing. Okay. Belly button gazing. Staring at your belly button? Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Jesus consistently seemed to be saying, we need to be out there serving, right? Jesus mm-hmm. didn't talk about, we need to be more spiritual. He didn't talk about, we need to pray more. He said, do pray, you know, ask for what you need. But it was what you need to do, what you need to be doing right on your journey in the kingdom. So if I've got a stumbling block, that stumbling block is keeping me from serving.
1: And sometimes those stumbling blocks are not necessarily um, a bad choice. Sometimes it's just you have two different choices um, or the one choice is going to be, I've been doing a lot of thinking lately because first of all, my eyesight is getting worse and it has been ever since 2009. So, um, I do a lot of things that require vision. I paint, I sew, I crochet. Um, and not being able to see is a, is a stumbling block to me being able to accomplish the things that I would like to accomplish. And I, I've i prayed a lot about it because I'm like, God, of all the things I lose, I've never wanted to lose my eyesight. But then I had this surgery. And Brian's heard me say this way too many times. I miss my voice. I can no longer sing the what? It's oh, surely! It is killing me because that was a passion. But I feel like God's calling me in another direction. And I have worked with the deaf in the past. And recently, whenever I'm in church and they're singing a song that I just cannot reach the notes to anyway, um, I start signing. Oh. And I had a young lady in church come up to me and she's been learning um, American Sign Language. She's in her fourth year. And I'm really wondering if God isn't leading us to begin a deaf ministry in our church. And I would not be able to do that if I were still in the quiet. But being willing to look at what God Is directing you to, and being willing to say, um, I'm willing to give up things that matter to me if that's not what's important to God. And I think that's even more of a stumbling block than sometimes sin is because we're trying to live righteous lives. We're trying to do the right thing. And if we're trying to do those things, sometimes just because it's a goal we have doesn't mean that's what God wants for us. And I've been having a really hard time coming to grips with that and a really hard time surrendering to God. And it's not the first time in my life that's happened. When, And I don't know if everybody here is is affirming of the LBGTQ community, but for me, I went through studying the Bible on my own, by myself, just reading the Bible. Because a lot of people say, "Oh, I mean, you read all those other books," and no, I was just reading God's Word. And then after the first year of reading God's Word, then I started looking at the commentaries by way back in the day, Bible commentators such as Martin Luther, and reading those kind of things and catching up on that. And I'm looking up Hebrew words. I don't speak Hebrew or Greek, but I'm looking up the Hebrew and Greek words online and seeing what they mean and stuff. And after three years and during that three years, I kept praying, God, I don't want to lead people astray, please, because I had it settled in my mind the way it was supposed to be. And I was kind of like Jacob fighting against God to bless him that time or whatever. I was like, oh. You know, I don't want to lead people astray. I don't, I can't change my mind on this. I've taught, I've been taught this my entire life. This can't be right. And God kept saying, yes, it is. Yes, it is. (laughs) And when I finally surrendered and said, I get it. This isn't a sin and I can love people. They're not going to go to hell just because they're gay or just because they're transgender or whatever. When I finally surrendered to that, I had such a peace. And now here I am in a different situation, but similar in that I've been fighting God and saying, but this is what I want to do. This has been, I've been doing this since I was five years old. I'm a singer. It's part of my identity. And God's saying, maybe you're putting too much value on that. And maybe you just need to just let me work a little bit in you and follow the path I have for you. And I haven't quite, I don't think totally surrendered it yet, but I'm working on it. And you can tell that by the tears when I say, but it's my passion, you know, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: but God can use us in ways that we couldn't imagine if we just Mm surrender.
0: That's
3: beautiful, Shirley. Mm -hmm.
0: Thank Thank you, you, sir. Thank you for sharing that. That that's a big deal. I haven't
1: planned to. That just kind of came
2: out.
0: That's a big deal.
1: But I mean, those things can be a stumbling blocks.
0: So mm-hmm. yeah. But it's it's along the lines of, you know, we can run into those stumbling blocks that other people set for us, that we have set for us, that circumstances set for us. And find that we can't move them. You know, we can be addicted to things and we can't move it, you know, but God can redeem anything.
1: Mm -hmm. God
0: is the path maker.
2: We are not subject to the stumbling blocks. That's amazing.
0: I don't even want to go more. You know, there's one more question. I don't even want to do it. (laughs) We didn't get to the last question. Okay.
3: Yeah, that's right. We didn't get to it. We ran out of time.
0: Well, that was just simply beautiful, folks. Did you have any other questions
1: for Woody? And I think he's answered this question before, but I can't remember. What does the Latin plaque behind you actually say?
3: Well, I, I'm not sure I can pronounce it in Latin, but what it means roughly is let justice be done, though the heavens fall. Huh.
1: Oh, beautiful. Uh, I get that because I get the justice word and the I, I can't pronounce it, but that last word um, looks like this is similar to the Spanish word for fall.
0: Mm-hmm. So that would be that it. sense.
1: Yeah.
0: Wow. All right any other thoughts let's uh pray for each other this week um for all those who are traveling and you know the things going on at the methodist convention we had news out of the southern baptist convention yesterday there's a lot of women out there that need to be prayed for so Uh um just that didn't go well. No, it didn't go well at all. So anyway, y'all, it's wonderful. And I will see you next Thursday. I love you.
3: Uh, I will see you in three weeks.
0: Oh in the bowl. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.